Welcome to Substance Free 02043, brought to you by Hingham Cares. I'm your host, Kristen Arute, and I'm President and Program Director of Hingham Cares. Our mission is to reduce substance use among youth in our community, and we do that by providing information and programming like this podcast. Our guest today is Chris Heron. Chris is a nationally renowned speaker in the field of prevention and recovery and is founder of the Heron Wellness Center in Seekonk, Mass. It's great to have you with us today, Chris. It's great to be here with you. So let's start by learning a little bit more about you. Could you share with our listeners some of the highlights of your life, where you grew up, your career in basketball, your family? Yeah, so I'm I'm from Fall River, Massachusetts. Uh, I have an older sibling. Uh, my dad uh, and my both my mom and dad had my brother and myself when they were relatively young, right, in, in their early 20s. They are one of seven siblings on both sides, and, and we, you know, we grew up a little hard in the beginning. Um, my parents worked extremely hard to kind of pull us out of the projects in Fall River, and they did a phenomenal job at that. My dad became, you know, an elected official, a state representative in Fall River, Massachusetts, and my mom worked for the telephone company which eventually it's from New England Telephone to Verizon, um, and she worked for them for like 30 years. So that's kind of the backstory. I also come from a very athletic family, um, you know, on both sides, the Carries, my mom's side, and the Herons. My brother really was, was the one who I followed growing up. He was, you know, Massachusetts Player of the Year multiple years in a row, went on to play basketball at Boston College on a scholarship, so that was kind of my blueprint to follow, which I did, right? Almost to a T. I, I ended up at I ended up at Boston College. And he was how much older than you? Five years. Okay. Yeah, five years. So I never we never crossed paths in high school. Um, when he was at BC, I was just walking into my freshman year at Durfee High School. You know, I followed his blueprint and and went to BC. And you know, I unfortunately that's where really my struggle began. Uh, that's where the, the story of substance use and, and, and addiction kind of, that's where it was rooted. I was introduced to cocaine at 18 years old, something that I, I planned on doing one time, one night, uh, turned into a 14-year struggle um, with, the, with the substance. You know, I didn't last at BC. I, I failed multiple drug tests. So BC and I, we parted ways. I ran from my addiction. I figured if I moved to the West Coast and play basketball in California, you know, I would have some freedom and I didn't. Um, and I struggled there as well. That's when I, at 21 years old, I entered my first treatment center on a 28-day program in Salt Lake City, Utah. You know, my career obviously is, is basketball. Um, that's the background, but, but the real background is the addiction that was behind it. And I battled with that since I was 18 years old. So you are a person in recovery, and you're very open about your journey. It's the mm-hmm. subject of the speeches that you do. When did you start using substances, and what were you using at first? I started drinking, right? I, I kind of drank the beer I never wanted. You know, my dad struggles with alcoholism. What do, you, what do you mean by that, the beer you never wanted? I was a child in a, in a home of, alcohol, of alcoholism, right? I, I despised it at a young age. I knew something about that Miller Lite beer can was... was, was fracturing my family was hurting my mother you know in my adolescence years i didn't know what an alcoholic looked like i didn't know what an alcoholic was i just knew that my dad's drinking was having a major profound impact on my on our family so that's the beer that i never wanted right it was the beer that i grew up despising and unfortunately um 
I started drinking it as a child. I was 13 years old, a boy. What was the impetus for that first drink? Did somebody offer it to you or were you just trying? No, no, it was just, it was a beer that was around the house, mm -hmm. right? It was like, I was curious, right? Like my, my, my mom and dad really struggle with this. It can't be, it has to be really good if my dad's willing to risk everything, kind of. You know, that, that was my first, first experience with it. 13 years old and, you know, then transitioned into smoking a little marijuana in my, in my teen years, early teen years, um, and obviously continued with that throughout high school. Would you say that you were a partier in high school or were you more of an athlete or did you somehow balance the two, in your own mind, balance the two? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was probably both. You know, Bill Reynolds, who wrote the book about, about me when I was 16 years old, um, you know, he kind of embedded in Durfee High School for a couple of years to write the book. You know, he'd be the first to tell you that has been on record saying that he didn't see it coming because I was always so busy with basketball. You know, I was constantly traveling. When all my friends were hanging out on weekends, I was in another state playing basketball somewhere at a very high level for high school kids. So when I didn't have basketball, when I wasn't traveling, I was definitely, definitely partying. So in 2011, you released a film about your career and the devastating impact that drugs were having on it, as well as on your family. And it's no secret that you were struggling going all the way back to your failed drug test for marijuana and cocaine in 1994 when you were playing for Boston College. Um, you were then kicked out of school for failing subsequent drug tests. And so it seems like that was pretty brazen behavior for you to be playing and knowing that you would have to take these drug tests and yet still engaging in substance use. Did you expect to keep that secret hidden or did you even care at that point? Yeah, I mean, of course I cared. I mean, and, and we already talked about failing the drug test at Boston College, but it was something that I, I leaned into, right? I was an 18-year-old boy with stress and pressure and, and substance was my crutch. Um, you know, thankfully I learned having children today that, you know, there's many more skills required for children to cope and to get through. Um, I just, I wasn't given those skills at a very young age. When did your battle with opiates begin? Uh, my ba battle with opiates kind of was always there, right? Like it was a drug that I, I didn't respond well to, right? I say it all the time. There's people who take a Vicodin or a Percocet after surgery and they feel horrible. And then there's the people who feel great with that in their system. Unfortunately, in eighth grade, I had a knee surgery. It felt great. Um, I had multiple surgeries throughout my career and painkillers were always not directly linked to my story, but they were around. It really wasn't until I got into Oxycontin that I feel, you know, uh, when I was 24 years old, when I was playing professional basketball, did my, my daily battle with opiates begin. Did anyone in your world recognize that? At that point? When I started taking Oxycontin in 1998-1999, it wasn't in the headlines, right? It was, right. It was, it was not relevant in, in, in society. It was not discussed, warned. It was a new drug, experimental drug, basically, and nobody was really familiar with it. But, you know, for me, unfortunately, the world of opiates and being dependent on a daily basis, I worked really hard to keep that secret. You know, it's, it, there's, there's a lot of pain behind it. And, and, and I didn't want to let, you know, my family know how, how much pain I was in, how much struggle. And I didn't want to also 
bring it into their world. So I, I tried really hard for multiple years to hide this as, as well as possible. And, and I say it all the time, like, you know, when I was in the world of opiates, I had plenty of money to buy them. I had plenty of resources to buy Oxycontin. And the, the people that I, I dealt with, the drug dealers who I met, they would always say to me, like, Chris, why don't you just give me 20 grand and you never have to see me again for six months? And I always, I came every day. I came every day and got my daily, you know, dose that my body, my addiction required because I never wanted to do it tomorrow, right? Like I always, wow. I always had this sense that like, I don't want to do this tomorrow. Um, you were going to kick it at some point. I just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's torture, right? And it's, and what it does to a family. I mean, the last thing, I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at my children playing with toys on the floor and I'm meeting a guy and, you know, ultimately taking a chance at dying. Every morning I did that for, for almost 10 years. That's incredible. And there's, there's a lot of shame that goes along with it too. Oh, there's a ton of shame. Yeah, yeah, there's a ton of shame. And, and, and you know, there's also the shame of, of adding shame to someone else's life, right? Like mm-hmm. I, knew, I knew that shame was going to tra- transition into my wife's world, into her family's world, to my children. Right. So you try really hard to guard that, you know, you try really hard not to not for your addiction, not to kind of ripple into the people who love you. And I tried really hard. But, you know, eventually that all, you know, it all came out. I think that that is a pretty common thread when it comes to addiction, whether you're addicted to alcohol or any other substances. It it doesn't really matter. So you're talking specifically about your addiction to opioids, but that same mental process applies to any form of addiction, correct? Would you agree? Yeah, of course. I think, you know, you don't, not many people walk in on a winning streak, right? I mean, everybody's kind of, everyone's kind of struggling. Everyone has some pain and some trauma that they're dragging along with them. You don't see people walk into heroin wellness with, you know, excited. You see them, you see them sad and, and, and defeated in a sense. But the beauty is you see their family with a smile behind them. That's the beautiful part of this is that you're helping the one walking in, but the family behind them are just so, so relieved. For the past 15 years, you've traveled the country as a speaker, mm-hmm. talked to countless numbers of teens and adults. The landscape of substance use has changed pretty dramatically since you began speaking. Can you describe what you've seen during those 15 years? Are there any trends that you've noticed or anything taking place regionally? Opiates were, were kind of very prevalent, you know, in, in the school systems when I, when I first began. I think, kind of, I think kids have, have shifted out of that somewhat. I think we've done a, a phenomenal job at really educating and, and making people aware of the dangers. And now it's the vaping, right? Now it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's vaping nicotine, it's vaping marijuana. That's kind of where we've rolled into in the last four years. And that's, that's basically what I see. I, I mean, but the truth is, I started telling my story and I stopped, right? So, so I walked into schools and I would tell my story and I would walk out and the schools would email me and the kids would say, God bless you. I'm praying for you. Good luck. I'm so happy for your family. But they would never disclose. They would never talk about them. So I pivoted and I changed my approach. I talked, I, I, I worked extremely hard at kind of constructing a new, a new approach. And, and again, it, was, it wasn't until I did a thing with um, 
Charlie Rose and Gail King. I did the morning show and it was called a segment called Note to Self. And I had to write a letter to my younger self and it had to be 500 words and they were going to fly in and they would film me reading it. And initially I was telling the producers of the Today Show that or the morning show that I'll have this done tonight. 500 words is easy. And it was the most painful thing I've done in my recovery. You know, to talk to that little kid in the bunk bed and, and kind of try to guide him through life. You can't change what happens, but you can talk to that kid how you want it to be talked to or needed to be talked to. So that exercise kind of brought me back to the beginning. And that's when I, that's when I started my talk the first day. Because again, I think when it comes to addiction, I think we've gone horribly wrong with the way we talk about it with children. You know, I, I think we put way too much energy and effort and focus in the worst day and we forget the first day. I think we, for years, we tried to scare our children away from drugs and, you know, here's an egg in a frying pan and this is what, the, what a drug addict looks like. But nobody talks about the very beginning. You know, like you said, the impetus. When did it, how did it start? And what's your why? And kids can, I, kids can relate to that. You know, when I, when I walk into schools today, I do about 200 high schools a year. When I walk into schools and I start talking about the beginning and why and what I was going through, you know, kids can, kids can, uh, can it's relatable. Because, you know, those things are still very prevalent in their world. Self-esteem, self-worth, peer pressure. What I've seen over the last seven, eight years since I pivoted um, is just the amount of outreach has, has been tremendous as far as kids seeking help and wanting to talk about, you know, their story and tell their story. So I'm very proud of the way I downshifted on this and, and changed, changed the approach because we... Uh, Heron Wellness and Heron Project have been able to help so many young adults. So we talk in the world of prevention about the underdeveloped brain, and a lot of parents don't understand that the, the teen brain is still in such a malleable state, and the frontal cort the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed, so there's risky behavior associated with that underdeveloped brain. Do you feel, having having shared your message with so many kids throughout the years, do you feel as though kids can kind of overcome that predisposition for risky behavior and that develop, underdeveloped brain? Do you think that there's messaging that really resonates with them? Do you think there are, there are certain tactics that schools can use? What is, what is your take on that? Well, I mean, you know, not many schools even educate children about, about the genetic component of, of addiction and the predisposition. So the fact that we don't, that wellness isn't a core class in, in our kids' school system right there alone tells you we're gonna have children struggling because they're not given what's necessary, what's needed for them to kind of protect themselves through these, while their frontal lobe of their brain is developing. Um, you know, we wait till it's too late to have these conversations. And, you know, when I, when I walk into communities, whether it's in West Virginia or Florida, the kids who are most receptive to my conversation, to my talk, are middle school kids. You know, they're the ones that are nodding their head. They're the ones that are kind of responding, identifying, and then raising their hands and wanting to, wanting to disclose. You know, when I first started speaking, it was like, we can't bring middle school kids in to your talk. And now there's community that, communities that bring fourth graders, fifth graders, sixth graders. And ultimately, those are the kids that should that's, that's the age where we should start educating and, and discussing all of these factors that, that children face. You know, there's kids today that have no idea 
of the genetic predisposition of addiction and because they have it in their family, you know, what, what the likelihood that they could possibly struggle. And, and we don't do enough about it. And to be quite frank, I think it's embarrassing. Do you think that the responsibility falls on the shoulders of parents, of the school system, of the community? Do you think legislation plays a factor? I think the whole spectrum plays a, a factor. You know, I mean, in a perfect world, the parents uh, are involved, the school system's involved, legislation's involved. That's, that's the ideal situation. But I think we have an opportunity to work with children from 5 to, to 18. And we do so little in, in between those years to educate them on life, on wellness, on coping skills, on all the social measures that they would need to take, you know, while they're growing up. And it's just, it's not every parent's present, but kids go to school and it should be, it should be in the school system. Moving on to the, the work that you're currently doing. So you founded the Heron Project in 2011 and then in 2018, you founded the Heron Wellness Center with um, Hingham native Lori McCarthy, who was co-chair of Hingham Cares at the time with me. Could you tell us about the mission of both of those? You know, Heron Project for me was real simple, right? I was some, there was someone there to pick me up when I was down. And that family um, extended themselves and, their, and, and, and gave me an opportunity to go to treatment and navigate that process that I was un completely unaware of how to navigate. And, and, you know, obviously families, when they're in this position that I was in, um, sitting in an emergency room after just overdosing on heroin, you know, it's tough to kind of slow down and say, okay, these are the next steps. Well, they picked that up for me and they gave me an opportunity to go to a center in New York, in upstate New York. And the fact that I sit here coming up on 15 years sober and what I've been able to do not only with my life, but especially my children's and, and the impact that recovery has had on everybody who, who's ever cared about me, who's ever loved me. I felt that I had an obligation to, to give back, right? I wanted to be that phone call for someone. When the family was like me, I wanted to be there on the other end of the phone saying, well, we, we, we have a place for you. And Heron Project started that way. Um, and over the last 11 years, we've given away Eight million in scholarships. Three thousand seven hundred people have gone to treatment because of Heron Project. Thousands and thousands of families impacted. And and over the last decade, we've kind of evolved. We've we kind of touch all areas, whether it's prevention. We have high schools all all across the country that are involved with Heron Project and family support groups online every every day, uh, seven days a week. And obviously still the core, the beginning of navigating treatment for people who can't, don't have the resources or can't afford it. I'd like to jump back to something that you had just alluded to because I realized it was a question that I was going to ask you. What do you attribute your successful recovery to? And you mentioned this family that was very supportive. Who were they? How did they enter your life? Yeah, the Mullen family was, was extremely supportive. They're the ones that gave me the gift. You know, my, my recovery is... is you know, it's, it's who I'm present with, right? It's who I work with, how hard I, I'm invested in. And, and you know, I, I've surrounded myself with people for the last 15 years who, who have just made me better, you know, and, and, and supported me throughout this, right? I can't really pin it on to one person. There's so many people that have redirected me, impacted me, and, and led me into these 15 years of recovery. 
That's incredible. And it's such an important message for people who find themselves struggling that it really is in the company that you keep. And if you want to get away from that lifestyle, then you need to kind of examine who you're surrounding yourself with. Yeah. You know, I, and I also think for me, and I tell people here at Heron Wellness, it's, it's being vulnerable enough to know who you really are. Like to, to really get to know who you really become, where you're at in life. Like if you can identify that space and then we can work up from it. And, and it really wasn't until I cried myself to sleep thinking about my children, my marriage, my family. You know, I buried my mom. She died from cancer. I was still active on heroin. There were so many things that, that was unresolved and, and that I really wasn't taking a look into or a look at, and, and it wasn't until I identified who I really be, who I really become, that it gave me some inspiration to just rebuild. I think at the end of the day, we have to know, you know, where we're at and and, and where we want to rebuild from. And I I was I was from the from the ground floor at that point in my life. So it's all about honesty, really. It is. It's it's a ton of honesty. It's it's a ton of self reflection. You know, it hurts, right? It hurt me. I was 32 years old. I had a nine-year-old son, a seven-year-old daughter, and my wife just gave birth to my, my youngest, Drew. And I'm, I'm in a treatment center in Rhinebeck, New York, and my wife's on food stamps. And, you know, we're struggling keeping the lights on in the house. We're struggling heating the home. You know, we have no vehicle. My wife is driving a catering van that a buddy gave to her to drop the kids off at school. It was, it was tough, right? And, and, you know, I could sit in that treatment center and say, oh, I'm Chris Heron. I played for the Boston Celtics. You know, this was just a little blip in the radar. I'm going to come back. I wasn't coming back. What I had to do is I had to figure out a way to come to a resolution with who I become and how I'm going to work from there. If you had to encapsulate that into a simple message, what would that piece of advice be for young people about how to stay safe, how to make healthy choices when it comes to substances? You know, I, I think kids need to, and parents need to get involved in this too. They need to ask why, right? Like when you see a young kid struggling, it's, you know, it's their friends, it's their friend group. It's, you know, it's always external, right? You see a kid come in at 14 years old and he smells like marijuana or he smells like alcohol. You know, the parent sits them down and says, who are you with? Where'd you get it? Who bought it? When'd you do it? How much did you do? But nobody asks why. Very rarely do parents sit down and ask their children, why did you have to do this to yourself? Right. You know, why did you have to consume alcohol, smoke marijuana to hang out with kids you've known since you were four years old? Something shifted, right? And you got to understand the shift. You got to understand the why. And, and, you know, I think it's extremely important to discuss those factors in young kids' lives. You know, I think there's a lot of kids out there who, and why not, right? Like these teenage years are, uh, can be miserable. Right. I mean, it's it's ridiculously hard to navigate through, not to mention what kids have to face today and what they have to walk through in, in their early teen and teenage years. But that's why I think it's so important is arming them with the right skill set, with giving them, you know, the right messaging and ultimately getting to know who they really are and the kid they're becoming. You know, I think one of the most powerful things that I've seen is, is when I, I have children think of who they are and think of their little brother and sister. And if their little brother and sister or their mom and dad got to really know the real you. I say this at events in communities, like when adults are leaving, like on your way home, think of 
your son or daughter, if they got to know the real you, how would they feel? Like your behavior that you keep secret, your actions that you don't show them, like who are you really? And, and if they found out who you really were, you know, how would they feel? And I think children need to know that, that, you know, it's, it's okay to understand the kid they're becoming and, and some of the choices they're making and the risk they're taking, but it's not discussed enough. What was contained in that 500 word essay that you wrote to your younger self? Was there advice? Was there? Yeah, it's all advice, right? And that, and that's what, how they explained it to me that, you know, Chris, you're going to go through what you went through. You can't change that, but you can talk that child through it. You can, you can kind of guide them through the storm the way you needed to be guided, the way you needed to be touched. And, and, and it was extremely difficult, right? Because, you know, as children, I, and I say this, I've been, to, I've been to Disney World like two or three times in my life with my family. I don't remember a minute of it. But I remember that big fight that happened in my house that night when my mom packed up the car and left. Wow. You know, I could tell you what she was wearing, but I can't tell you about Disney World. And that's, that's the power of trauma, right? Right. That's, that's, what, that's what sticks. That's what resonates. That's what stays. You know, so it was, it was talking myself, right, through the storm. I think the storm is it's relatable for some, not for all. Right. But but I believe every kid has one, you know, and, and I'm sure I'm sure they feel alone and, and misguided and 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 not helped through some of those moments. So that's what that's what that's what the, the note to self did for me. It said, Chris, you know, you got to start talking to kids about your early years. You've already touched on this a little bit. You are a parent yourself mm -hmm. of three kids, and I'm sure that there are lots of lessons that you've learned along the way that you've applied to raising them. If you had to give a piece of advice to parents, what would that kind of salient point be? To me, the only point is, is to focus on their self-worth and self-esteem. You know, I think a healthy kid in the soul, I think that's, that's our greatest goal as a mom or a dad, right? To have a happy mm -hmm. child. You know, I heard in AA when I first went in, and I wish I'd never heard it, but you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. And, you know, like... Wow, I've never heard that before. That's so true. So you sit with that, right? You can have five children flourishing, doing great, but that one struggling, you're with them. You know, Christopher is 24 years old. Samantha's 21. Drew is 14. And, and my two oldest have never engaged in any type of um, substance use something that I'm extremely proud of and something that they're something they're extremely proud of. They should be. That's impressive. You know, they walked through those years of self-doubt, self-esteem, self-worth and, and managed those moments without alcohol, without nicotine, without marijuana. And I'm, I'm so, so proud of them for that. You know, and, and I have my youngest is 14. He's kind of the sober kid in the family, right? Because I got sober the day after he was born. And so he's lived a very different life than my older children. And, and my older children sometimes will remind him that their childhood was much different. And they've been unbelievable, unbelievable role models for, for my youngest. But one of the greatest accomplishments in my life as a dad is my son told me he wanted to quit basketball. The fact that my son could call me and say, Dad, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. It does not make me happy anymore. I, I felt so full 
at that moment that, that he could pick up the phone and have that conversation with me. That was a huge success when he was 21 years old and he played at Boston College for a couple of years. He transferred to San Diego. While he was at San Diego University, he just said, Dad, I'm not happy. And I said, let's pull it. You know, let's, let's walk away because your happiness is what matters most. And I think, you know, that's, that's kind of been my focus on my children is, is just continuously reaffirming their self-esteem, their self-worth and trying to continue to build them. Especially given your family legacy, that must have taken a lot of totally. courage for him. Yeah, he's, he's Chris Heron, right? He's Chris Heron. He went to Boston College. Like, I mean, I wish, there's times I wish I never named him Chris Heron, right? I wish I, I, wish I, I wish he had a different name because what, and, 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 you know, my children, listen, I've been speaking for 15 years and they've had to face a lot of this through social media, through, through messaging from other children, Right. I didn't walk through this process alone. Everybody who who loved me, my family came with me and they've all felt it in one way or another. Right. In multiple ways. Um, you know, my son, Christopher, was getting messages from grown men that were vile messages about tell your father to do this, tell your father to overdose. And this has been an unbelievable commitment over the last 15 years, not just for me, for my children. Well, I'm sure they're stronger as a result. Sure. Everything that they've been through, they've, they're a lot more resilient and they've had the support of you and your wife. Now, Heather also works um, with mm-hmm. the Heron Wellness Center, doesn't she? She does. She plays a role? Yeah, she does. It's, they all play a role. You know, like today, my son, both my children will be here. You know, my youngest son knows more about the people in this center today than I do. You know, he's like, he, he gets to know everyone. He sits down with everyone and we, it's, it's a, it's a family, it's a family business. There's no doubt about that. And, um, and it's perfect because, you know, I tell people all the time, like one of the most common questions when I'm speaking is, is how often do you talk to your kids about addiction? And my, my response has always been, I don't, I talk to them about recovery. Mm -hmm. So my kids, my kids have grown up with recovery and they've witnessed it and I talk about it and I, I tried very hard for the last 15 years to make recovery attractive. You know, not, not only for, for others, but for, for, for my family. Can you just tell us a little bit real quick about um, the work that you do with Hingham High School? Residents from Heron Wellness come and speak to students at Hingham High School and that's made such an impact. We've heard anecdotally that that's the most impactful moment for a lot of kids in their high school experience, certainly in the health class. It's beautiful, right? Vulnerability is powerful. And, and we have young adults here that we bring to Hingham High School and they sit in front of those children in their health class and they, they tell their story. And they sit up there for 10, 15, 20 minutes and they pour it out there for these kids. And, you know, like for instance, this last group that went to Hingham, we had, you know, multiple 19, 20, 21 year olds, you know, one year away from, from where those kids were sitting at their desk. And, um, and that's, that's good to see. But, but for me, I also think it's good to see how, and I think that's what we've done at Heron Wellness. Recovery is cool, man. Like recovery is, recovery is cool. And, and we make it that way. It's not like, oh, you, you're punished. You can't drink for the rest of your life. You know, it's thank God, you don't you don't have to drink for the rest of your life. And that's, that's what we do here. And kids walk into that school and, you know, again, for me, it was, I was done with the scare tactics, right? Like this, this is how bad it got. 
And, you know, those kids walked in there with smiles on their faces, glowing. And, and not only did they tell their story, but kids knew that they were happy in recovery. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. It has. Thank you for having me on. It was great speaking with you. I want to thank our guest, Chris Heron, for being with us today. For more information on Heron Wellness, go to heronwellness.com. That's H-E-R-R-E-N wellness.com. You've been listening to Substance Free 02043, brought to you by Hingham Cares. I'm your host, Kristen Arut, and I hope you will tune in again. For more info or to get involved, go to hinghamcares.org.